How we doing? We doing good this morning, church family? All right, reach over, touch your neighbor, and tell them it's never too late. It's never too late. Is it never too late for a Christmas gift? Never too late for a Christmas gift. Um, my uh, my dad had the, uh, I don't know, maybe unusual, maybe normal habit of uh, going Christmas shopping on Christmas Eve. Every Christmas, he wouldn't buy a thing. Every Christmas Eve, he would go over to Costco or Sam's Club and just get whatever he could get. And so we got some interesting things growing up. And uh, I was like, wow, 3,000 cups, Dad. That's <laughs> that would be great. And then sometimes we got some really awesome things. $500 camera. And, you know, but it's some, the, one of the leftover packages there. And then uh, he's like, oh, I think these guys would like that. So I, you just never know. But is it, is it ever too late? And, and I just want to remind you and remind all of us this morning that it's never too late to turn to God. Um, if you are still alive today, that is evidence of God's mercy. And it is never too late for you, sir or ma'am child, teenager, to turn to Jesus Christ and to receive his love, to receive his forgiveness, to receive the adoption as a child of his. It's never too late. And so uh, let's let's remember that here as we think about this lady named Rahab. This is kind of an interesting series. We're here, the mothers of Jesus, right? Kind of weird biblical stories. Last week was probably the weirdest. This week it only gets moderately better with a prostitute hero, if you will. And um, and, and so what is going on you know, for the, the weirdest Christmas Advent series I think I've ever done. But but it's really, it's been good for me. I hope it's been good for you to really, that this series is really the heart of what Christmas is about, is that Jesus came to the earth to, to welcome us back into his family. And, and this, if we're honest, is where the New Testament begins, the Christmas story. Um, Matthew chapter 1, the Gospel of Matthew begins. In fact, we'll put it on the screen, just the first kind of couple of eight verses here. Um, is the genealogy of Jesus. This is where the New Testament begins Christmas, and it, and it says this. This is the genealogy, right, the family lineage of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he's going to keep going, so just track with me here. Uh, go on to verse 2, and he goes on, and he says, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And that's the guy we learned about last week. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, right? And, and Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, just stay right there. If you remember last week, this, this family here, this, this just messy, man, don't tell anybody about this situation because it involves uh, deception and seduction and, and incest. Like, this is the kind of stuff you don't tell anybody about. And yet God puts it front and center in the genealogy of his son, Jesus Christ, as if to say, I am not afraid of my family. And welcome to my family. And, and this is who I came to seek and to save. And then, uh, and so that's, uh, and again, this is the mother. That's what it says there, Tamar, the mother. So we're looking at these five women here um, throughout um, uh, the lineage and the, the genealogy of Jesus. And then look at the next verse there. Verse 4 goes on, right? Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nishan. Nishan, the father of uh, Salmon. And then verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz whose mother was Rahab, right? And this is the lady we're going to be talking about today. And then we'll go on. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was 
Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse. And then in verse 6, it will remind us, Jesse, the father of King David. Uh, and David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And so we see four of these women, and then Mary uh, will be at the end of the genealogy. But this is the kind of the, the angle that we're tackling here as we look at. Man, it's just amazing that God would, would put these women in his genealogy, because typically that wasn't something you would put in a genealogy. In a male-dominated society, those women would be downplayed, unless there was some sort of need to really say, this person did something so awesome um, that, that we want to prop up how good we make Jesus look. But yet we find these kind of messy situations here. And, uh, and Rahab's situation um, is, is still a little bit dicey. And so as we think about this, we, we see God's mercy. We see, as one person said, right, to weave the gospel. That's what Matthew wanted to do, the gospel. Right? It's like he wanted to weave the gospel message in through the genealogy so that we would be reminded that God came for imperfect people. And, uh, and that's the reason he came. And that's the reason for Christmas time. Amen. And so as we look at this lady Rahab here, uh, what, do we, what do we take away? What are some things that she's going to show us? And again, as I said before, it's, it's never too late to turn to God. It's never too late for a second chance with God. Never too late for a third, fourth, fifth, 27th chance with God. If you would turn to him, he would receive you. And so let's, let's just write down a couple things here. I've got a couple points I want to share with you uh, from the scriptures today. Uh, point number one is this. Rahab shows us that God delights in mercy over judgment. God delights in mercy over judgment. Last week we saw that God is a God of justice and judgment as he came uh, on behalf of Tamar's story and that God cares about justice, especially for the least of these, especially for the low and the weak and the marginalized. But God also delights in showing mercy over judgment. But let's understand the, 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 the latter part. Of, let's understand the judgment piece because we need to understand that God is a holy God righteous, and he will not let sin go unpunished. If he let sin go unpunished, what good would he be, right? People who let criminals go off free and continue to terrorize the society, we would all say about them, that judge is a terrible judge, right? I've, I've heard conversations from people in this church, I'm like, man, you know, this guy did this crime and he got two years and then he's back out, you know, and, and this person, they, you know, and we can understand these ideas of justice and judgment, right? And, and maybe you're in school, right? And, um, and, and, and you see kids cheating all the time on tests, right? And then the one time you just look over at your neighbor's paper, right? The teacher's like, bring me that paper right now. And you're like, that's not fair. Like, they've been doing it all. You know, like, we have these ideas of justice, right? We understand what judgment means, hopefully. And I know sometimes in our modern society, we, we, we try to remove judgment from everything. But I, I want to let you know that God is a God of justice and judgment. He will hold us all accountable for our sins. In fact, that's what's happening here. Let me back up. The story we're reading that Miss Yvonne read to us is, is about the Israelites moving into a new land, the land of Canaan. They had been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years, and then God promised them this land. But there were people in that land, and what God said is, I'm, I'm driving out the people in this land, the Canaanites, because they have been wicked and evil. And I'm bringing them, I'm bringing my judgment to those people because they've done awful things. And, um, and so that's the, the point here of what's going on is that God is a God of judgment. But thankfully, he delights in mercy over judgment. Let me just give you a little bit of a background here about this city of Jericho. And maybe if you have kids, you've heard of, you know, the, the Battle of Jericho or the or I first got introduced to it by the VeggieTales video. 
where these lovely little fruits and vegetables hop around the city with no arms, and yet they can carry trumpets and shields and weapons, and they hop around the city and they sing, and, and uh, they do that for seven days. On the seventh day, they do it seven times, and the walls come crumbling down. That was the first time I ever heard about Jericho, and I was a college student, and so uh, that just lets you know how new I was to all this. Um, but this city was a wicked city, and God was bringing judgment against them. And, and let's just be honest before, if we're getting a little too sensitive about that, if anybody is the correct judge of character, it's God. And so when God says, it's time for me to bring judgment on these people, we can know, and you can look through the Bible, that God has been merciful for hundreds, if not thousands of years, giving people time and time again to turn. In fact, I would argue that he's giving the people of Jericho an opportunity to turn back to him. But let me just read to you a little bit out of Deuteronomy chapter 12, what God said to his people about the Canaanites, and he warned them about them in chapter 12 of Deuteronomy, it says this. It says, when the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them all and dwell in their land, verse 30, take care that you not be ensnared to follow them in their ways, right? So in other words, you're moving into this, this, this uh, area. Don't be conformed to the way and the customs and the culture of these people because they're wicked. That's why I'm removing them. So don't do what they do. And so he says, um, after they have been destroyed before you and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? Hmm, I'm curious. That I may also do the same. He's saying, don't do that. Verse 31. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Just to show you one piece of the wickedness, there were multiple levels of wickedness that the Canaanites had from, again, uh, their, their sexuality and their murderous attacks on other people. But one of their gods, Molech, required parents to offer their children as a sacrifice. And not just, you know, now I'm looking at all the kids in here. I'm like, okay, let's just tone it down here. Uh, but to be burned, right? And, um, and, and this is not just getting rid of the kids. This is torture of babies. And God is bringing judgment on them for such things along with others. Oh, how we are not so different today. And, um, and, and this is a great opportunity for us to be reminded to speak up for those who have no voice. And justice, as we talked about last week, when it comes uh, with abuse and, and when justice um, needs to rise up and protect women who are vulnerable. It also needs to protect unborn children, the most innocent people in the entire world who can't speak up for themselves, and they are slaughtered by the thousands every day. And, uh, and it's a piece of justice that we must speak up against, but God is bringing judgment to these people. Uh, in another chapter in Deuteronomy, God says this, and uh, in chapter 9, verses 4 through 6, he says, he says this to his people, do not say in your heart after the Lord, your God has thrust them out. That's the Canaanites before you. Don't say this in your heart. He's warning his people. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me to possess this land. So in other words, he's warning his people. Don't become proud. I'm not putting you in this land because you're so good and these people are so wicked. I'm removing them. It's my grace that I'm giving this to you. And it says this, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your forefathers, Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. And then verse six, 
Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. And look what he says to his own people. For you are a stubborn people. He's warning them. He's like, hey, don't let it go to your head because I give out my grace freely, not because uh, uh, because people are so good. I give out my grace to all who would receive it. And so don't think that you're such a goody two-shoes as to where, why you are where you are today. It's been God's grace that has changed you and I. Isn't that right? And so often we point to people in our society and we think, oh, I'm so much better than them. But I love the same. But if it wasn't for the grace of God, there go I. And so he's warning them. The people of Canaan, the people of Jericho, they deserve to be destroyed. And God himself is the only person who can see all the intents of the heart. He is the only righteous one who can say when it is time for me to bring my judgment. I can't say that as a human being. No human being can, but only God alone can. And he makes the right judgment every time. He is a perfect and good judge. And Jericho and Rahab deserved destruction because God saw all the intents of their heart. But I'm here to remind you that even though he's a God of justice, you know what he loves and delights in more? He delights in mercy more than justice and judgment. And so we've got to carry with us the fullness of God. Is that yes, justice will come down and we will be accountable for every one of our sins unless we submit them to the mercy of Jesus Christ. And there they can be all wiped away, all washed away. And so Rahab de deserved to be destroyed. And she knew this. Check out what she said. We'll go back through the text now. Um, in verses 13 and 14 of Joshua chapter 2, where, where uh, Miss Yvonne had us. And again, if you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you just to grab the Pew Bible, follow along with us. It'll be so helpful to you because um, as you get to look at that, um, it'll be really important. We'll navigate much of Joshua 2. But it says this in verse 13 and 14. It says, this is Rahab's word. She's pleading to these spies, and she says this, that you would save alive my father, my mother, my brothers, and my sisters, and all who belong to them. And then it says what? And deliver our lives from what? She knew destruction was coming. She knew that she deserved that. She said, would you, I'm, I'm submitting to you. I'm, I'm pleading, would you show us mercy? And was she shown mercy? Absolutely she was. Because God delights in mercy over judgment. And, and, and then look at what it says in verse 14. Check this out. Then the men said to her, our life for yours. Our life for yours. And of course, these men were making an oath to her saying, we promise when the destruction of the city happens, we promise that we will not destroy you or your family. We promise that. We swear on our own lives. But look at the phrase there, our life. For your life. That's a picture of the gospel. Isn't that what Jesus is saying to every one of us? My life on the cross. A promise given by me for your life. You get to go scot-free. You get to be welcomed in to the kingdom of heaven as if you had done nothing and absolutely zero wrong. My life for your life. And we see the gospel right there. We see that mercy is what God delights in. In the New Testament book of James chapter 2 uh, God says this, he says, uh, he's talking about people showing mercy to others. And then he reminds us, he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. And so, yes, God is a character that is holy and righteous and his holiness burns against all sin and wickedness. But he's also a God of great mercy. And that's why he sent Jesus. That's why Christmas is such a celebration, because it's a celebration of the mercy of God coming in its fullness. 
In fact, as we look in uh, this text here, the leader of this group of people, his name is Joshua. Joshua is the leader of the people of Israel. Moses was the previous leader. Now he's transferred that leadership to Joshua. Joshua's name actually means, it's the Greek, it's the Hebrew, excuse me, it means Jehovah or the Lord saves. The Lord saves or the Lord delivers or the Lord rescues. The Lord brings to safety. The Lord liberates. That's what his actual name means. Joshua. Yeshua. Maybe you're aware of this. The Greek name of Joshua is Jesus, which means the Lord saves. The Lord rescues. The Lord liberates. The Lord redeems us. And so here we see Joshua is a picture of Jesus thousands and thousands of years before he's ever come. We see the gospel embedded throughout the scriptures. Joshua. Oh, how we're longing for a greater Joshua. Jesus Christ, the Savior. In fact, that's what the angel Gabriel said to Mary, right? In fact, he said, you will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the true Joshua. Joshua is reminding us that God delights in mercy over judgment. Amen? So that's the first thing. The second thing is this. So Rahab shows that God delights in, in mercy over judgment. But secondly, Rahab shows us that God is not ashamed of us. And maybe we know that on the surface, but I think if we're honest, we really wrestle with this on a core level, right? Rahab shows us that God is not ashamed of us. Last week, the kind of the last, as we talked about Tamar, one of the last things I said was, you know, this, this, this reminder that Tamar and the messiness of their situation in Judah and just the ugliness of that is a reminder that God is unwilling to edit anyone out of his story, right? You think about the genealogy of Jesus. There's no one on this earth that could choose their family, right? You didn't, you, you, you weren't like, you know, preborn, like, ah, let me find a family here. These people look good, right? You, you couldn't choose your family, right? Some of you are lamenting that right now. You're like, I know, I know. They're coming tomorrow. They'll be here this afternoon. That's why I came to church today. I got to get filled up with the Holy Spirit before these folks come, right? No one could choose their family except for Jesus. Did you ever think about that? And he chose us. Matthew could have chose to put all different people in the genealogy, but he puts these people. He puts the, the Tamar and the Judah, right? Like if I were writing that genealogy, like I would edit that out. I'd be like, let's put Sarah in there. Let's put some godly people in there. Oh, let's put that. You know, we all got stories we don't anybody know about. And yet God is reminding us, I'm not ashamed of So God is unwilling to edit anyone out of his story. But think about Rahab. She is she's an outsider. She's the very definition of an outsider. Okay? If if she's the most unlikely person to receive mercy, right? And in fact, to call her an outsider is probably even an understatement. She didn't belong anywhere. She's the definition of an outcast and an outsider on many different levels. She's a woman, she's a prostitute, she's a foreigner. Look back with me at in the same chapter, Joshua chapter uh, one, uh, Joshua chapter two, excuse me, verse one. It says, Joshua, the son of None. You guys remember the old joke, right, about Joshua, who was the only person who never had any parents in the Bible? Joshua, the son of none. Right? That's a corny preacher joke. Some of you are just like, what? What, what did he say? I just caught up to it. Okay. 
I'll be here all day, folks. Two men secretly from Chittim as spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they and when they went, they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. She's a prostitute. I don't know if you know this. This is not a real proud occupation, right? Young girls aren't saying, mommy, when I grow up, this is what I want to be. Right? No, no young woman dreams of being that. They get into that position because of deep wounding and shame. They get into that position because of mere survival. This woman is wounded and feels shame on so many different levels. Do you, do you know how they probably talked about her in the, the, the city of Jericho? Do you know how she was looked at? Even her home sort of is this symbolic reminder. You're an outsider because where does she live? Her, her room, her home is built into the, the wall, the borderline between insiders and outsiders. So, yeah, you're part of the city of Jericho, but we're keeping you as far away as we can. She's an outsider. She feels deep shame. But she's also, she's a foreigner to the people of Israel. And yet, by the people of Israel, by the people of God, she, as a foreigner, is receiving mercy. And not just any foreigner, but a foreigner of an enemy nation. She was the most unlikely person to receive mercy. But that's how our God works. And so most of us might be like, okay, all right, pastor, God loves to show mercy to, to those who are outsiders, uh, to those who are broken, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I wonder how many of us feel that way, right? Many of us feel like we don't fit in. Even in our own homes, maybe with our families, as you prepare for family get-togethers, you feel like, I don't really get in. I don't really fit in with my own family. I don't really feel at home, even amongst these people who are my blood relatives. Maybe at school, you don't fit in. You feel like, I'm the only person here who goes through this. I'm the only teenager. I'm the only student who is wrestling with this. Nobody else knows, and we feel like we don't fit in. Maybe even at our job. I'll be honest with you, it pains my heart to say this, but I know that it's true because I've had many conversations and I've been around long enough. Even in this church, there are some of you who feel like, I'm an outsider here in this church. Everyone at that church is like this, and I'm the only one. I'm an outsider. Everyone is married. I'm single. I'm a widow. I'm a divorce. Right? We, we we will, by the enemy's destruction, we will you know, think of ourselves and cast our own selves out where God hasn't cast us out yet. But he calls us and invites us in, and he welcomes us. Do you feel like an outsider? I have many times, and I still feel like that in, in various situations. And I bet she's wondering, right, is there a place I can go where I can be accepted? Is there a place where I can go where I can be fully known, where I can be welcomed in? And yet, the Israelites, the people of God, welcomed her in. May it be so for us as a church. May we always be a church that welcomes all in. Right. That's why we just read our vision statement just a few moments ago, that we welcome all who are far from God. We're all these different people. And God welcomes the outsiders. But here's the thing. He doesn't just welcome us. He delights in us. He's not ashamed of us. Uh, uh, maybe a year ago, I gave you guys some theological words, all right? And um, uh, reach over, touch your neighbor, and tell them nothing wrong with theology. Nothing wrong with theology. Oh, pastor, going to take you deep here, okay? Like, you know, we got some big words coming out. It's okay to make the brain work a little bit on a Sunday, okay? And so these two sort of theological words that, that we gave way back probably in our, uh, our, our love and our forgiveness series that we did, and, uh, and, and they are expiation and propitiation, right? 
expiation and propitiation. You guys ready to say those? On three. One, two, three. Expiation and propitiation. I can't even say them correctly half the time, so don't feel bad. But these are good theological words to be reminded of. A lot of us get the expiation. The expiation means this. The wrath of God has been removed from me, right? I am forgiven. I, I deserved judgment and punishment, and now that's what I got. It's, it's removed off me. And it's kind of like God forgave me, and he's like, get out of my sight. Don't do it again, right? But he doesn't actually like me. When he looks at me, he probably he sees into my heart, and I'm embarrassed and shamed of the things I've done, and he looks inside of me, and he says, I love you, but I really don't like you. And, and many of us feel that way on a core level. I love you and I forgave you. I expiated your sins. They're removed from you, but I do not like who you are. And I'm here to tell you that's a lie from the devil. God delights in his children. And when he looks at you, he sees his son. That's where the word propitiation comes in. It means two different things. One, it means covering. And so when he looks at you, you are covered under the righteousness of Christ. He has propitiated. He has covered you. And so that is on you. But here's a good way to remember it. So ex, right? Like your ex, you know, your ex-girlfriend, your ex-boyfriend, your ex-husband, your ex-BFF, right? That's your ex. That's been removed, right? You're no longer. But then pro means, right? If I'm pro-Christmas, I mean, it means I'm for Christmas, right? Propitiation means God is for you. God is for you now. His heart, his love, he is not ashamed of you. So when he looks at you, he is not ashamed. And again, we can go back to the genealogy of Jesus and we see Rahab's name there. If he was ashamed of Rahab, he would have said, do not put her in the genealogy of Jesus, right? And some of us feel like that, right? Like, oh, there are people in the church. There are, there are the deacons and the elders and the, and the community group leaders and the people who serve. And those are the people that we want to put up front and center. But, but like when I'm in the church, like I'm back of the bus, Christian. That's how I feel, right? You'll hide that, Christian, because I don't have it all together. I'm, I'm really just a mess. And I've done these things secretly. If anybody knows about these things, they'll reject me. And God probably is rejecting me in his heart anyways. But God delights in you as his child. He's not ashamed of you. If we look in Joshua, and if you have your Bible there, I'd encourage you just to flip over chapter 6, uh, verse 25. Chapter 6, verse 25, is this reminder that, that Rahab has not only been forgiven, but she was part of the family. She received the favor of God and of his people, and God is for her. In, in chapter 6, verse 25, it talks about uh, Rahab. It says, but Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her Joshua saved alive, right? That's the expiation, right? You see that? They were saved alive. Joshua 6, 25, and then it says this. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from whom Joshua sent to spy out. She lived in Israel to this day. She stayed with them. It's like she's become a welcome part of this nation. She's become a welcome part of this group of people. She lived with them, and there are some uh, Jewish uh, uh, stories outside of the Bible that talk about that she married, um, uh, you know, again, someone in the priestly family. And so she became a welcomed part. She now traveled and moved along with them. She was no longer a shameful prostitute. Everybody who was unloved, who nobody wanted, who was damaged goods, who was a mess, she was a daughter of God and brought into the people of God and wanted 
and desired and pursued by her Lord and Savior. Rahab shows us that God is not ashamed of us, and we have to let that sink into deeper levels because we often think of ourselves as shameful people and that God forgives us, but he really, truly doesn't like us. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, it's talking about Jesus and how he sanctifies us. It says this, for he, that's Jesus, who sanctifies, that means cleanses us, and, and those who are sanctified all have one source. And then it says this, that is why he is not what? Ashamed to call them brothers. He's not ashamed of us, folks. Let that sink into your heart this Christmas, that you can be reminded and encouraged that God is not ashamed of you, not just on a, on a head level, but on a heart level that you are accepted and loved by God, even if nobody else accepts and loves you, even if everyone else says you're an outsider, you know you can come to God. And then finally, as we read earlier, right, in Matthew chapter 1, everywhere in the Bible she's called Rahab the prostitute. Rahab the prostitute. And there's that reminder of her past, right, my shameful past, except for in the genealogy, right, where it just says, Rahab was the mother of Boaz, right? Rahab, the mother. Rahab, not the prostitute, but a new identity, a new person in Jesus Christ, a new born again, right? Or as the song said, the pastor Caleb just reminded us of those lyrics, born to give them second birth. And so number one is this, Rahab shows us that God delights in showing mercy. Number two is that Rahab uh, shows us that God um, Excuse me. There we go. I got the numbers wrong on the screen there. So God is not ashamed of me even when I mess up my numbers. You may cast me out of this church because I can't count, um, but I'll still have a home in heaven, and I'll see you all there. But God reminds us through Rahab that that he's not ashamed of us. And then thirdly and and finally is this, is that that Rahab shows us that genuine faith is always accompanied by actions. Genuine faith is always accompanied by actions. Many people say they believe in God. Many people say, yes, I'm a believer. Many people say that, but do our lives testify to that, right? You've often heard the phrase, actions speak louder than and then it's like we come to spiritual things, we come to religious things. It's like, oh, no, that, that doesn't matter. I can say I'm a believer all day long. I can say I prayed a prayer when I was five. I can say I believed in God every day of my life. But do our actions demonstrate we truly love and trust God? Do, do our actions show that? And when we look at the actions of Rahab, she risked her life. She risked her life for these spies, if you think about it. Let's look back at the text here. We see. In verses 8 through 11, if you look in Joshua chapter 2, we see that her faith is personal, right? And many people that I talk to, they'll say, Pastor, I don't talk about my faith because it's personal to me. And amen for that. Your faith should be personal. But it's also got to get practical as well. And we'll talk about that in a second. But first, it's personal. Notice her conversion here. Look at verses 8 through 11. It says this. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof. Now, remember this? They came into her abode. Right? This lovely house of ill repute. I kind of wonder, are these guys great spies? Like, I'm, I'm wondering if, if going to her house is like a great move or a not so great move. Like, I just wonder what was going on. I don't know anything about being a spy, but I'm seeing 007. I'm seeing 
know, Bourne, Jason Bourne, and all that sort of stuff. I'm just wondering, like, did they go to spy school, or what, what were they thinking here, right? And so, but she hid them underneath the stalks of flax on her roof, and then the soldiers came, they looked, and then she said, no, they went the other way, you know, and, and the classic, you know, before the city gates closed, go, go get them. And they were hiding underneath the, uh, the stalks of flax on the roof, okay? And, but now it's bedtime, and she could just go to bed and leave those dudes up there, but she wants to go to them. Her heart is burning. She desires something more. She desires something spiritual. So she goes up to them, right, before it is, it is bedtime, as it says in, in verse 8 there, right? Before the men lay down, she came up and said, look, we got to talk. And she said in verse 9, she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Now, that's an important word there, the Lord. You see it there in your Bible, all capital letters. When you see the Lord, all capital letters, that, man, that means the personal name of God. Hebrew is Yahweh. You may have heard it. Jehovah. That is his personal name. When he came to Moses and he, and he revealed himself to them, and, and, and Moses said, who are you? And he said, I am that I am. He's saying, I am Yahweh. And, and that's why I'm, I've existed from all of time. I am that I am. I'm, I'm continually existing. I am the God of all other gods. So when you see the word, the Lord, all capitals, you know that's the personal name for God. When you see God, that's the, the word Elohim. That just means God, right? All kinds of God. Elohim, Elohim. And, and so her people grew up with all these different Elohims, all these other different gods, Molech, Ashtoreth, and all these other gods, Elohims. But here she says, the Lord, she has personal knowledge now of who he is. She calls him by his name, Yahweh, the Lord. And she does this several times here. Many commentators would say this was her confession of faith here. And, and, and we'll read it in just a second. But in, in the rest of verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Verse 10. For we have heard how who? The Lord. Also notice who's doing all the work here. The Lord, right? The Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what? What you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Verse 11. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, your God. And then notice this is her confession of faith. He is God. He is the Elohim. He is the Elohim where? In the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And in other words, she's saying right now, I am declaring my faith. The Lord, Yahweh, is God over all these things. And I've, I've grown up hearing about all these other false gods, the God of the sun, the God of the river, the God of, of this. And she's saying, I'm declaring now that, that God, the Lord, is, is king over all, and I'm submitting my life to him. This is her confession of faith. And so it was personal for her. She did believe. Now, I find it interesting here, Notice through the passages we just read, who heard this message? Because this message had come to her. She hadn't seen a thing. She was doing what she was doing, okay? And um, she hadn't seen a thing, but she heard the message. Who else heard the message? If you look through those verses, it says all of us, all the inhabitants of Jericho, and only one chose to believe, the prostitute. And one received mercy. In fact, we would say her family received mercy as well because she shared that message with them. We'll get to that in a moment. But I find it interesting to believe that the whole city heard the exact same message about the Lord and only she was the one who believed it. 
And so her faith is personal, but uh, track back with me. Her, first, her faith is very practical, right, in verses 4 through 6. Notice what it says in verse 4 of the same chapter, chapter, chapter 2. It says, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came in, but I did not know where they were from. In fact, if you were to look at the verse above, she, the message came from the king. She's lying to the king. I don't know, you want to talk about risky? She's risking her faith. She's risking her life. She could have easily said, you know what? Maybe I can get out of this whole prostitution, poverty thing that I'm in, and I can get in goody-goody with the king. And she could have chosen that, but she knew that there was something deeper to life. She knew that there was more to her own rescue, and she put her faith in God and was ultimately rescued by giving away her life. In fact, that's what Jesus said, the first will be last. Anyone who wants to find his life, Right? He's got to lose it first. And here she is risking her life. She's got a little teeny bit of faith, and she risks it all. And then uh, verse 5, it says, When the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. And she said, I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Verse 6, But she had brought them up on the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in, in order on the roof. And then verse 12, if you'll notice, skip down to verse 12. It says, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly to you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. She's asking to be saved. She's asking to be rescued. And this is a risky move. And I don't know about you, but I just want to remind you, wherever you are in your faith walk, whatever you know of the Bible, whatever you know of God, take a step of obedience and believe that and act upon it. You don't have to know everything, right? Bible knowledge is not given to us for our information. Bible knowledge is given to us for our transformation. So whatever you know, she took the little, she's just a brand new believer here, a pre-believer on some levels, and, and she just, she acts upon that. She says, I'm going to protect these guys. She risks her life for them. And so her faith bears out in her practical actions. James chapter 2 verse 17 reminds us, so faith by itself, if it does not have works or actions, is what? is dead. Faith without works is dead. And I want to remind you also that our, the, the practical bit of our faith also includes sharing the gospel and the good news with others. Did you see how she did that? Look back with me at verses 12 through 13. As she's pleading with them, right, she says, now please swear to me by the Lord, there's his name again, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with me, just me, just save me alone. What's she saying? My father's house. This is amazing on so many levels. Why? She's a prostitute. You think her and her father and her family were proud of her? She's willing to say, I love my family, even though we've been torn apart probably relationally and there's all this unforgiveness. Man, I am seeing this opportunity to be redeemed and rescued by God. I've got to extend this to my family, even though they're all broken and messed up and, and they don't like me and I don't like them. And I extend that to them. She could have easily said, hey, just take me. Just take me. But this is evidence she's leaving her way of life. She's leaving her, her way of thinking, and she has been changed. And this is bearing out in her actions. Take my father's house as well. And then if you continue with me into verse 13, she says this, that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. She was an outcast. They were ashamed of her. I don't know what the conversations looked like at Christmas and dinner. You know, was she even invited to the house? All that sort of stuff. And she still 
chooses to forgive them and invite them to know this great God and Savior that has changed her life. And oh, may that be so for us. Christmas is a reminder of our mission, right? In the same way Jesus came to the earth on a rescue mission, so us as Christians are sent out into the world to help rescue the world. And so, believer, where are you today? Non-believer, where are you? And, and, and what are the things that God is calling you to work on as we think about gospel groups go, as we think about sharing and having gospel conversations with those around us? And we look no further than Jesus, again, the one who redeems us, the Joshua. He is our hope. He is our hope so that God won't be ashamed of us. He is our hope so that we receive mercy instead of judgment. He is our hope to equip us to love others, right? He is our hope that gives us courage and strength that we can practically lay out our faith and our actions because we can't do it all on our own. We need the hope of the gospel, amen? So we're going to move to a time of response, and I would just ask you, how is God calling you to respond? Again, maybe you need for the first time to pray to receive Christ as your Savior. You need to receive mercy over the judgment that you know you deserve. Maybe just for you as a Christian, you just need to receive some extra mercy. Maybe you need to be reminded, as we said before, God is not ashamed of you. Maybe you're just going to dwell on this uh, in a moment as we sing. Or maybe you're just going to be encouraged by the fact that your actions need to come from a gospel root, need to come from gospel power. And so let's pray together, and then we'll respond to the Lord. Father, as we come to you now in prayer, Lord, I'm thinking about those here. And maybe, again, maybe some of them have heard about you, but they've never placed their faith in you. Their actions are not bearing out. And, and, and maybe you've revealed to them they're not truly a believer. They've said they're a believer, and they need to cry out to you for mercy. And maybe just in, in your heart, if you know that's you and God has been speaking to you, maybe you need to pray this simple prayer in your heart, and you could repeat the words after me. There's no magical words. But there is an intent of your heart, just as God saw Rahab's heart. She didn't pray any magical formula, but God saw her heart. But maybe you would say something like this and crying out to God. You would say something like this. God, forgive me. God, forgive me. I admit that I have sinned against you. And I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that he died on the cross. And I believe that he rose from the grave to pay for my sins. And I trust him to rescue me. Help me now to follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name.